Do you own firearms? Did you know there's an easy way for you to let everyone around you quickly see whether your firearm is loaded or unloaded? Well, meet muzzlestick, barrel, and chamber flags. Muzzlestick, chamber, and barrel flags offer a quick way for anyone, whether they handle firearms or not, to quickly see the loaded or unloaded status of a firearm. And that could save lives. Are you one of the nearly 80% of firearms owners that keep a loaded gun out of the safe for personal protection, taking an extra safety precaution by using muzzle sticks, big, bright barrel and chamber flags will let everyone around your firearm know if it is loaded or unloaded. Muzzle stick does not recommend keeping a loaded firearm outside of a gun safe, but the reality is that some firearm owners do. Clearly marking a gun status communicates to others around that may or may not have firearm handling experience that it is something that they would not want to handle. Muzzle stick is not intended to replace the rules of firearm safety. However, their chamber and barrel flags give firearms rapid and clear identification, which could result in saved lives. It's time for you to do everything you can to be a safe and responsible firearms owners. Head over to muzzlestick.com. That's M-U-Z-L-S-T-I-K.com today to place your order. After all, we all only have but one life. Hello, America, and welcome to the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor is the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow in Military History and Classics at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. We welcome you. This is our Friday News Roundup, so we're going to talk about the news, and we're doing this a little bit earlier in the week than we normally do, so hopefully these news stories will still be read, resonating, and I have a feeling they will. We're going to talk about, of course, things about the war in Israel and the Biden administration, and we will be looking at Iran and Hamas as well. So stay with us, and we'll be right back. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms, and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We're back. Um, again, this is the Victor Davis Hansen Show. You can find Victor at his website, victorhansen.com, and it's called The Blade of Perseus. So please come join us. Either just come check out the website and be a lurker, as they call <laughs> those people, <laughs> or join us as a subscriber, either for $5 a month or $50 a year, and you will have access to the VD8 
VDH Ultra material, which comes out three times a week. So please um, join us and, and become a subscriber. Victor, there's lots going on in the news, of course. Um, but I was wondering if you um, had a few things to say. I know it's hard to talk about the Speaker of the House, but it seems like they're at a really bad setback now because they don't have just one. They have, I think, nine people that they're looking at. How long do they think they have to find this Speaker? It's just well, frustrating. Are, they're arguing that they don't need a speaker, but it's not so much whether they need it or not or whether the pro temp can do what the speaker does, but it's the appearance, again, that they have a seven to eight vote majority and half of one third of government, and they can't even control that one third and one half of one third of government. That's the perception. So, you know, when I hear leftists, they're delighted. So why would anybody on the conservative side be delighted when it's just enthusing the left? I had a lot of criticism, Sammy, from my criticism of Matt Gates for blowing this all up with that just five, four or five percent of the Republican caucus trying to remove the speaker successfully, I should say, removing them. But then consulting Democrats, as I said, on to help him win that majority on the premise that Kevin McCarthy had talked to what Democrats. So it was incoherent. But people said, well, he was trying to stop the spending and Kevin McCarthy is a swamp creature. I understand that if that's true. I don't I understand the logic of it, but the damage that was done to the brand and the sense of chaos right now when we have a president that's utterly chaotic. And just take everybody, take a deep breath. So who is speaking for the United States right now in our in our moment of crisis? Think about it. Is it Joe Biden? He's at the beach. He's non compos mentes. He says one thing on Monday and the opposite Monday evening, you know, and who's the next in command? Kamala Harris. Enough said. We don't need to go there. And then we have. Mitch McConnell, the leader of the Senate, and he's had three or four, what would you call it, timeout episodes where he goes blank. <laughs> That's generous. As if I'm doing a podcast and all of a sudden Sammy says, Victor, you haven't said anything in three minutes. <laughs> and then we have whom? We have the speaker. Oh, no, we don't have the third most powerful person in government. There is no speaker. So in that void, everybody is freelancing. So you've got Rashida Tlaib leading this, uh, these crazy protesters into the rotunda. You've got Lindsey Graham threatening basically an existential war with Iran. You've got everybody. So somebody has to step up. And the Republicans had a golden opportunity now to step up. We even have Barack Obama coming out of his, I don't know which house he came out of, the Colorama mansion, the Hawaii mansion, the Martha's Vineyard mansion, the Chicago mansion. But he came out and he kind of, same thing. Israel has to dismantle Hamas and they need the uh, the wherewithal to do it. And then now it's, oh, they're going to hurt their label for generations if they do it. In other words, he's a sunshine friend that... In the abstract, Israel should not have to suffer a thousand women, elderly, infants, 
children murdered, mutilated, and yes, beheaded. We have a pathological pathologist report and a firsthand testimony that she saw beheaded corpses as well as outside observers. It's another Palestinian Hamas-Gaza lie that there were no beheadings. So that's my problem. They don't have, they're not stepping up to a golden opportunity to exercise leadership because they're all fighting with each other. And now we're into a cycle, to use the left's word, of MAGA people say he's not MAGA enough, so they're going to get a MAGA person. And then Rhino say, or independents, I don't want to demonize anybody, but I don't know what they are. Neil can, I don't know, but they're saying, well, you did it, so we're going to do it. So we're going to stop Jim Jordan and back and forth and back and forth. And you're right. The whole time there's a sense projected of leader, leaderslessness. So, and what are they going to do anyway? Yes, they, we spent $1.7 trillion we didn't have so far this year. It's horrible. And we're $33 trillion in debt. But it wasn't like our guys under George W. Bush or under Donald Trump were physically sane. They Bush increased, almost doubled the debt in the four two four-year terms, and Trump almost increased it by half in his four years at the same rate. So we could have stopped it then because in both cases, for a golden moment, we had the House and the Senate and the presidency, but we didn't do it. So the idea you're going to shut down the whole government and discredit your label now when you really don't have the power to stop, and maybe you, can, and you, you can't really shut down the government when we're facing two existential wars and we're needing to ramp up on our munitions and we need supplemental funding. So, yeah, I, I'm I don't know what to say. I get I get all I've had a lot of criticism this week from people. One person wrote and said, will you forecast that the 2022 elections all? I said they would take the House. I said they would they would have a righteous big win. But I didn't know that. Roe versus Wade was going to happen right when it did. Somebody said, you were wrong. You're wrong. You also predicted Donald Trump. And maybe you could tell me, Sammy, did I predict that Donald Trump could not win? I don't think I did. No. I said I didn't know if he could get the nomination because I don't know. I haven't had a theory yet on how he's going to avoid a house arrest, gag order, uh, imprisonment, all these terrible things. I've been consistent. That's terrible. It's just a misuse of the law to, to demonize and emasculate the likely Republican nominee. Okay, I get that. But if somebody out there says, well, that's stupid, Victor. He's just going to campaign. And I said, well, we'll see, because he hasn't faced any, the judges and the juries and the prosecutors in these formal trials. And believe me, I know the left. That's what they're going to do. My consistent theme is get a policy, get legal experts right now working on the constitutionality of running for president when you're a felon or you're convicted or you have a travel ban. What you don't do, do people don't think that. The judge and the Latita James or the Alvin Bragg or the Fannie Willis or the Jack Smith, all partisans, all with partisan prosecutors, won't at the key moment of the campaign say Donald Trump is under house arrest for violating the conditions of data, fill in the blanks, gag order, or we're going to put a travel restriction on him so he can't campaign. 
And he's going to do what? Do a Biden campaign out of the basement? From where? The jail? So I'm not saying these things are going to happen, but I wish that people would start having task forces. And when nobody's writing about it, nobody's talking about it, we need to get a lot of conservative experts in the Constitution and uh, jurisprudence precedents and say, this is what can happen. This is what he can do and what can't do. Yeah, yeah, it certainly because would be. Because they're trying to just, they're going to wait till he's nominated and then they're going to unload yeah. with trial after trial after trial. Yeah, and it'll be an unloading that we've never seen before never in the seen campaign. Before. You've never yeah. seen, nobody thought anybody would dare do this to try to take out the leading nominee of the op, the out party. Nobody ever thought they would do that. And for things like overvaluing a real estate asset. Yeah. As if Mar-a-Lago's only worth, what, $17 million? <laughs> Is that what they said? It? At one point they did. <laughs> well, um, I was wondering then, too, before we go to break, um, your thoughts on, I know that you and Jack talked a lot about the um, universities and the anti-Semitism, et cetera, but the Biden administration seems to be out and worried about Islamophobia and hate crimes against Muslims, and I was wondering if you had any thoughts on those. They have no, they have no data for that. The FBI, I've been reading the FBI data tables of all the groups that are victims of uh, hate crimes, and that's hard to, to know because not all groups are ready to go report things. But the two groups that are disproportionately number one and two are Asians and Jews. I think Muslims are number 15. And the most overrepresented perpetrators are African-Americans. So we're no, nobody talks about hate crimes. So then Kareem Jean-Pierre just mouths off and said there's Islamophobia, but she has one knucklehead, insane guy that shot terribly, shot a young Muslim boy. But we don't know who this, uh, the rabbi, what were the circumstances of her murder in Detroit. We have anybody who looks at the news right now sees and go to a campus and ask yourself, go to Stanford where I work, go to Harvard, go to, and ask yourself, if you were an Arab student, do you feel in danger at Stanford? Or if you're a Jewish student? Are Jewish professors doing this? And there's a lot of Jewish professors at Stanford. Are they saying, all my Arab students, put your belongings down and go over to the other side of the... the are, they gonna, are they saying, Palestine shall be into dust? A banner, like has happened at Stanford? I don't no. think so. I don't think there's a, uh, you know, six, seven hundred Jewish students occupying the, the the free speech area with saying the Palestinians should be exterminated because that's really what from the river to the sea is extermination of Israel. So I, I that's just boilerplate rhetoric. Yeah, it sure and we is. saw it after 9-11. And uh, it's also an indication of ignorance because did you see that MSNBC map that they showed on television and it had the Israeli cities. I mean, Tel Aviv was up in the Golden Heights <laughs> yes. and Citro was inside the West Bank. I mean, only a functional literate would do that and then nobody caught it. And these were all the people in that media sphere are all graduates of supposed Tony University. So they're not only arrogant, they're ignorant. That's, I wrote a, a column on American Greatness uh, today about it that, you know, there's all, I listed all the incidents of just 
pure, unadulterated hatred toward Jews. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about a person in the Art Institute calling them pigs and excrement. I'm talking about a trans African-American professor saying that he wants to follow their children and, you know, follow them, i.e. euphemism for get them. You've got, there's example after example. And then when you you look at the demonstrations and you look at all these young wealthy kids and they're all out talking about Hamas, for Hamas, for the uh, the radical Gazan position. And the thing that was weird about it was that was before Israel retaliated. It was right after the murders. They were out on the street. So I was thinking, well, what if Israel didn't do anything? You're still protesting? This thing has been so bizarre when you have, as I said earlier, when you had the president saying the problem was they couldn't shoot straight, meaning you could shoot at the Israelis uh, if you're Islamic Jihad and it hit, you hit that city and killed them, we wouldn't have had a problem with all these protests. Or you had Anthony Blinken saying in the Middle East, our embassies might want to consider lowering their flags to half-mast in sympathy with the hospital fake news story. It's just surreal. And then you hear this president saying, don't. They always have this rhetoric. The louder and more frequently they threaten, the less likelihood they're going to do anything. And so he says, don't. Don't dare. Well, even even our Secretary of Defense, Austin, was he looked traumatized. He said, well, you know, we're in a high state of We've had five. They're attacking all the time in Iraq, American installations. They, the American ship just shot down drones and missiles going overhead. So the more you talk and carry a twig, the more likely you're going to have war. And when Barack Obama tells Israel not to retaliate, that is an invitation for Hezbollah and Iran to intervene. If they think that after suffering the greatest loss of Jewish civilians since the Holocaust in one day, that Israel, even then, with that, with that provocation, still is afraid to go in and get Hamas. Then we better get in because why the getting's good because they're not. This generation's not going to do anything. So it's completely counterintuitive. So I'm getting really tired of these people talking loudly and constantly with a twig instead of quietly and seldomly with a club. All they need to be is strategically ambiguous. Yeah. You know, just say, you've got to make your own decisions and we're going to make ours and you do your worst and we'll do our best and we'll see what happens. End of story. And then mass a huge force right off their coast. Yeah. And deterrence, remember, comes from a Latin word, de terio, to terrify someone from something. And it's Vegetus, the Roman writer on military affairs, said, if you want Peace, prepare for war. That was the classic formulation of deterrence. And deterrence is obtained through a variety of economic dynamism. Japan has a certain level of deterrence by its economy. So does Germany. By military power. By political, astute political leadership. By unity at home. Because I do think that the big fight over the Supreme Court and the left's huge demonstrations gave the wrong singles, signals to Hamas and a secure and sovereign border. But we flunk on every one of those items. Bad economy, 
bad border, high crime, a population in civil tension, and a military short on recruitment, a military with an woke agenda, a military humiliated in Afghanistan, a Chinese balloon goes with impunity across our military installations, and we're giving money we're apparently giving money, $6 billion to Iran. It's prompting attacks on our forces in Iraq. We're giving $100 million only because a rocket, as Joe Biden said, fell short and was blamed on the Israelis. We gave them $700 million. So we have, they, we have lost deterrence. And when you lose it, it's very easy to lose, but it's very, very hard to recapture. We had lost it after Obama. And Donald Trump, he regained it by killing Soleimani and saying, go ahead and do it and see what you do by facing down Kim Jong-un, by bombing the SHIT, as he described it, of ISIS and destroying them without any hesitation, dropping anything he could with telling the Taliban, if you continue to do this, we're going to bomb you back to the Stone Age. And we were pretty much on a formula to get out peacefully, steadily out of that hellhole with Bagram Air Force Base in our possession. And that was a deterrent situation. And remember about deterrence, being predictable and accommodating and magnanimous is a formula for a war. And being unpredictable and somewhat uh, erratic at pre- determined times is a formula for peace if you back it up on occasion yeah and so yeah we'll see well let's go ahead and take a break and then we'll come back and talk a little bit about iran and hamas stay with us and we'll be back professional welder shana ford used vr training developed by forge fx to hone her skills as a welder the more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at SCS. Dot Georgetown dot edu slash podcast. Welcome back, Victor. So I wanted to the administration seems to be all over the place with um, stating that they're behind. They have 
Israel's back and then pressure on Israel not to use or to use restraint, money to Hamas, billions to Iran. And then just recently, John Kirby, after all of these billions to Iran, said that we are not going to allow any threat to our interests in the region to go unchallenged. And he was referring to Iran as though now he's a tough guy. And I was wondering if you could um, sort of clarify what you think this administration is trying to do, confuse people or what? Um, this administration doesn't understand human nature. If you put 20 to $30 billion in assets and say 20,000 sailors right at the point of the spear, and then you continue to warn and threaten people, and you have no record, this administration, of competence, much less following your threats with real muscular action, then you're putting a lot of people in harm's way. Because it gets back to that statement that Joe Biden said about the predicted invasion of Ukraine by Putin, which is emblematic of the entire administration. Remember, they said, what would you do if Putin invaded Ukraine? Remember what he said, Sammy? It depends on whether it's a major or minor invasion. And that set the tone. So was he going to say, what are you going to do if they hit a ship? Is it depends on it's a major or minor explosion? And so the thing about, again, as I mentioned, this very brilliant scholar from Australia, Blaney, and he pointed out that wars break out when people have forgotten the relative power of the respective belligerents. We have more power than everybody in that Middle East plus China plus Russia put together at this point. We are in clear de decline, but even in our nadir, we have more power. But if they don't think we do, then you have to have a war to determine who really did have the power. And when you, in World War II, when Hitler convinced himself that Britain was weak because they were desperate for peace and Chamberlain was giving almost the entire country of Czechoslovakia over to him, he didn't understand they were also creating 425 Spitfires a month and they had the best pilots in the world and it would be very hard to invade ever Britain when Britain still had the largest navy in the world. But that was not conveyed to him. And so and going back to 1935 when Mussolini was going into East Africa, the British could have shut down the Suez Canal in two seconds and they could have blown those new uh, Italian battleships out of the water. No problem. They didn't even have night vision capability, the Italians. And they didn't do it. They just let them go. And so that, that's what causes wars. And it's very hard for humans, I guess, to accept that. that uh, it's kind of like your parent, you know, when you're a kid and you stick your tongue out at your mom and dad. And the more you do it, you think the more you can do it. And then you get really, you think, and the parent that lets you do that thinks you're going to like them more, but actually the person who disciplines you, you tend to respect and finally indeed like. People in the Middle East are terrified in Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Egypt. They're terrified of us because they're terrified of Hamas and they're terrified of Iran and they're terrified of Hezbollah. But they're terrified that they will say something negative about them and the United States will not back them up. 
and then they're going to be out on a limb and we're going to saw it off. Yeah. And that's the problem. Yeah. And, you know, when um, Mattis was Secretary of Defense and McMaster was National Security Advisor and Trump was president, they had a huge armada that just sailed right through the Straits of Hormuz. And when they started, I can remember when they did it, I think it was during um, the Trump administration their first year. But the more that you did that, the more chips that wanted to join. Can you get, let us get in on the on the parade? But when no, you don't do anything, then war is likely. So I'm, I'm very worried. One last thing, you mentioned Hamas. This isn't really a war, everybody. In a war, in the Yom Kippur War, remember, there was a surprise attack by the Syrian military, the Egyptian military. This was not a military. This was 1,500 to 2,500 gunmen who went into a nation at peace in the morning during a holiday when many were at festivities and butchered them. And they, did, they butchered them intentionally. Remember that. They, they mutilated them. They raped them. They dissected them. They beheaded them. They burned them. And they wanted to convey a message. They wanted to convey a message that we're nuttier than you are, of course, and we're capable of everything to terrify Israel. But they also wanted to say, see, we're subhuman, and you made us do it. And that's such a bogus argument. It's almost as if... The mafia says we put people in cement and dropped them in the ocean to show you what you people did when you were anti-Italian. Or the cartels behead people. We and the cartels were, yes, we're subhuman. We behead people, but we put our heads on uh, the heads over an overpass for display. But it's because of the corrupt Mexican government that did that to us. Well, that's that. That's the argument they're using. So the more that uh, it appeals, the more they're going to do it. And they're kind of like, I don't know, they're, they're the part, they're not the Waffen SS, which was a military formation, the Totenkopf group and those people, but they are SS or they're Einsengruppen, they're Ersatzgruppen, uh, mobile death squads, I guess that translates out of German. And uh, they're hitmen. And in most, uni in most militaries, the civilian overseers, where, you know, I didn't see General Austin in a uniform. He's retired. I didn't see Joe Biden, the commander in chief, in a uniform. I do see American soldiers. But Hamas were wearing sneakers. They were wearing some had camouflage, some had Levi's. They don't wear uniforms. They're killers. But to show that <laughs> that they're tough, every once in a while, one of these guys in gutter or on the news has a uniform when he's safely away and he's never going to hit an idea. Another thing to remember is they don't have a concept of collateral damage. Collateral damage means how could you when your entire intent is to kill civilians? You, you want collateral damage. Uh, it's not collateral then. That is your main tactic. Collateral damage is when collaterally, by accident, you bump into the IDF and you kill one person. And that's collateral for them. But they don't have a concept of that. They put Gazans around hospitals, schools, mosques, pack them in there, and then they shoot rockets. So they use humans to protect rockets to kill civilians. And some of you are going to say, well, why do they do that? They do that because 
as the world says that Israel is indiscriminately butchering people, President Obama, Hamas doesn't believe that's true because they think their shields are actually working in their favor. They allow these launches to be successful in doing what? Killing civilians. So you might ask Hamas, well, why don't the Israelis do it then? Why don't they put a bunch of Jewish kids, uh, I don't know, around a battery that's uh, shooting rockets into Gaza? Well, they don't do it because they're humane, but the real <laughs> one of the reasons is that that would attract a Hamas to kill them. There could, you couldn't shield them because Hamas doesn't value any life. So here we sit in this Orwellian world damning Israel, but we all know in our black hearts, our evil hearts, what the asymmetry is. One side uses civilians to shield rockets. The other side uses rockets to shield their citizens. It's very different. One side kills out of uniform. The other side kills selectively the people who kill out of uniform. And as far as the collateral damage by Obama, first of all, we don't even know that we're supposed to believe every single figure that comes out of Hamas. Ask yourself, if you are a MSNBC reporter or you're a CNN reporter with a demonstrable bias of Israel and you go into Tel Aviv, you can go into Tel Aviv. Do you really think that any of us in this audience can get a press credential or Fox News and go into Gaza and deal with Hamas and say, you know, Mr. Hamas, you are exaggerating. We want to see the data of all the dead that you claim, because you said that 500 people were incinerated in a hospital. And I just got back and I discovered that the hospital wasn't even incinerated and that most there might have been anywhere from 50 to 200 in the parking lot. And the shrapnel cases were all and the video cases were all and the intercepted communications were all proof that Islamic Jihad did. So I can't believe you on these figures. They would shoot you. They would shoot you. But Barack Obama believes in literally. Yeah. And so it, it's it's so asymmetrical. It really is. It's really it's a kind of a commentary on this Western disease of these sick people. It's they're a, very sick and uh, yeah. they're anti-Semitic. Yes, but they're even sicker and they have a self-loathing of their own culture and civilization. It's nihilist and they kind of like people that are nihilist. That's the ultimate expression of Western nihilism, Hamas. And they will excuse it. Remember, they did not wait until Israel responded before they started cheering on Hamas death squads. They did it before Israel responded. And had, had Israel never sent one bomb into Gaza, they would have been delighted and they would be doing it today just as they are now. Sure, they would be out celebrating. That's what, what was so strange on October 8th is they started saying... There's protesters out in the street, and they're Palestinians. And I thought, how could they protest something if they're on the side of Palestinians here because there's nothing to protest? And yet that, you know, it, it seemed to me it was more of a celebration than a protest. Who didn't protest? The, Very few Arab citizens, the 20% of the Israeli population didn't protest. What were they going to say? Well, I'm an Israeli and I, I uh, Arab Muslim, and I didn't know that I was a colonial subject until that student, 22 years old at Harvard, enlightened me 
that I'm really a colon and I can't wait, I can vote and you can't, but I can run for office, but I'm a member of a pub of a political party, but I'm a severe critic of the Netanyahu government, but I make more in one day than somebody in the West Bank or Jordan or Syria or Iraq make in a week. And I have free speech and I can worship as I please. And I can say anything I want about Christianity, Judaism or Islam in Israel. You think those people are going to go and say, please give me my wish to go back to Gaza or go into West Bank. They're not going to do it. And yet we're told they're colonial subjects. And it's just, it's, I don't know, it's it's frightening. Here's an, and then it's also so surreal. Have you, has anybody in the audience ever heard that at a time of war, that the world pressures the party that was attacked to worry about the effect of its response on the population of the country it's retaliating to, such as Barack Obama's very worried, but when they killed people from the Pakistan border in Afghanistan, our people, remember Obama even at the White House Correspondents' Dinner joked about the predators. Somebody dates my daughter, watch out, predator. And then John Brennan lied about collateral damage because they knew they were. That whole predator uh, targeted assassination was based on the premise that if you saw one terrorist driving somewhere in the Hindu Kush or on the border between Pakistan and Africa, you took him out with a predator missile and you killed a lot of people in the car, just like we did in anger about the suicide bombing in Kabul. We blew up 13 civilians. Okay, that happens. But does anybody, did anybody say to Barack Obama, well, I'm very worried about the effect of of the United States militaries uh, on the population of Afghanistan. No, um, I'm very worried about the people of Dresden and Hamburg about the bombing. I'm, I think it's outrageous that we bomb Japan. That we have to go immediately give food and water. We do that after the war and we're magnanimous. But during the war, no. I, did anybody, I, Sammy, maybe you can correct me. Did anybody say... I, I, I just, you know, I just don't, not in my name, am I going to give any more HIMARS or missiles or 155 art- millimeter artillery shells to lob into the Donbass occupied region of Crimea because you're hitting civilians, you Ukrainians. So when you strike back at these Russian aggressors, I understand you have a right to protect yourself and a responsibility. But when you hit back at them, I want leaflets and I want phone calls into the apartment buildings and the surrounding infrastructure. Nobody says that. It's only the Jews. Yeah. And they're really good about that. That's the weird thing. You know, warning people to get the civilians Another thing people don't understand. So Israel says they've taken out, what, 250 liters of Hamas and they've arrested thousands. They've arrested a, a lot in the West Bank. Now, how do they know that? Who's Hamas? And how do they know exactly where they take out Hamas in Gaza? It's because people are calling them up. And they have been for years. And the people are calling them up because they don't want to be a shield. So if you're sitting in Gaza and you haven't done anything and you're kind of angry that they've taken your farm for a rocket pad and they went in and butchered everybody in your name and you had a job in Israel and all of a sudden they're 
coming to your door and saying you're going to move into the basement of this mosque, maybe you get on your cell phone and say to the IDF, this is the, the Hamas guy's name. Here's where he lives. So they ha- that's how they're getting their intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Victor, let's go ahead and take another break and then we'll come back and talk a little bit about um, the Jews and, and the Democratic Party. Stay with us and we'll be right back. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irvin Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. We're back. Um, Victor, I, I, I noticed a lot of discussion on the question of whether um, given all this anti-Semitism on the part of people who are in the Democratic Party, what will the Jewish position be in the long run? And I've seen some historical development of it. And recently, David Mamet wrote a column where he was looking at the historical um, sort of actions of Jews when faced with hostile anti-Semitic um, leadership or populations. And he said that he basically made the point in all of these historical cases where they, he said they turned to the leadership and expected to be able to appeal to its humanity. And they ended up very disappointed in that. And he concludes, and it was really a, a nice conclusion at this point in his article. He said, these appeal in the name, these appeals in the name of humanity to powers which may believe in humanity, but unfortunately do not consider Jews human. And I thought that was a powerful moment. Well, he's just quoting moment. what he's not, he's just quoting what out of the Arab press, they're pigs. Or I shouldn't say the Arab press alone. He's just reporting what a professor at the Art Institute of Chicago said. Said that they were excrement and pigs. So, yeah, but what he's trying to... And I've had dinner with David. I really like him. He's a really brilliant guy. And what he's, what he's telling us is that the more... There, there's no way that you can appeal to these people rationally because they have a deep-seated hatred. And... The Democratic Party, it's, it, remember how, what the Democratic left does. It projects anything that it is culpable of, ballot tampering, it projects. You can go out 120 days and riot and burn courthouses and police precincts and kill 35 people, $2 billion worth of damage, injure, and they will project that, that's, that the January 6th is a full-fledged, pre-planned insurrection, but not them. And so what they're doing when they say MAGA has hijacked the, the Republican Party is that we've hijacked the, the Democratic Party. And that's what they've done. And it's, it's the people that run 
the Democratic Party are the Obamas and and Jill, Jill, she's the conduit that tells Joe where to walk, where to sit down, what to think, who to appoint based on the prompt of the Obamas, Elizabeth Warren Wing, Bernie Sanders, and the squad. And to a lesser extent, the BLM, Black Caucus, and the marginalized people, DEI industry. And they all have one thing in common. They do not like Israel. And they say they don't like Israel because that's a euphemism for Jews. They don't like Jews. And they consider Jews white, wealthy, capitalist, and they're binary. They're the oppressors and the victimizers. And they don't consider the Holocaust. They don't consider anti-Semitism. They don't consider any of that. And they hate Israel and they don't like Jews. I should say hate, but I'm not going to be inflammatory. And if you're a, and traditionally, 90% of the Jewish community has supported the Democratic Party generation over generation over generation. Norman Podhoretz wrote a brilliant essay once why that was. David Mamet has also added to that argument. And it's very hard to break that fealty. And I'm not sure they're going to do it because the Democratic Party, look what Gavin Newsom is doing right now. This is one of the most anti-Semitic states. California, where I'm sitting, of all the states in the U.S., the most far left. Its universities have the most radical Palestinian Hamas supporters. Where I, as I said, where I where I work, and I, we had a professor that tried to create an apartheid situation against Jews in his own class. Uh, Jewish enrollment at Stanford, at Harvard, at Yale is at an all-time low. One of the things when you went to what I would call repertory admissions, that is that so-called whites are only represented at 20 to 30 percent of the new incoming class, uh, even though they consist of 67 to 70 percent. They target Jews in that fashion, along with Asians. And so Gavin Newsom, is, <laughs> he went to Israel and what he's basically and then he's in China Talking about green. So what he's doing is he's trying to run for president and he wants to shore up Jewish Democratic left wing financial and media support. And I, he, he wouldn't do it if he didn't think he could do it. Right. And so that's that's a problem. And until Jewish donors to universities or players in the Jewish community say these people hate us. And they've taken over this party and they are cheering the deaths of our relatives, our friends in Israel because they're Jewish. And they only come and talk to us in times of elections when they want something. And I can't do this anymore. And we'll see if that happens. I'm skeptical. It's kind of like the, the Hispanic community. They for generation after generation, they felt we're poor. We came from a poor impoverished Mexico. The Democratic Party was for amnesty. They were for open borders. They were for generous welfare. So, uh, and so we're part of them. And then you say to them, but wait a minute. They hate organized religion. They've watered down Catholicism. They're on, they're for abortion on demand. And they are the drivers of this trans thing. They want to take away your pickup. Uh, they want to charge you six bucks for gasoline. And, and what do you have in common with all that? 
and they'll say, because I live in a community that's mostly Mexican American, they'll say nothing. <laughs> but 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 I can't vote against my mom and my dad. It's kind of like me. I grew up in a Democratic household, albeit a conservative Democrat. Harry Truman, um, JFK household. But my whole family are still Democrats, my siblings, everybody. And they can't. And for me, it was never a no brainer. Once I saw Jimmy Carter, yeah. I can remember saying to my mom, <laughs> I'm, I might not. I might vote for a third party, John Anderson, but I will not vote for that guy. He's dangerous. She said, but he's a Democrat. And I said, yeah, mom, but he's dangerous. And she said, well, you have a point. There. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> you have free will. So. Everybody gets wedded to the, they get in these ruts and it's very hard. And I think the Jewish community is going to have to break out before these people are dangerous. If you give them power and if you give the democratic left power like they have and they perpetuate it, Israel is going to cease to exist one way or the other because they are giving Iran basically billions of dollars to get nuclear weapons. And they have said, that they are perfectly willing to use them if it results in the elimination of the Jewish state and they lose half of the Iranian people. They don't care. Yeah. All the better to go up to paradise. So these people are very dangerous. And if the left has its way, there won't be a Jewish student in a university, a, a, a traditional elite university. It'll be right back to the 1930s when they're saying we don't want Jews at Harvard. Yeah. And it's already that way. I think it's in, in some ways it's much more overt. I don't remember, you know, I don't remember growing up in the 50s and 60s with this overt anti-Semitism, maybe a little bit with a crazy Nazi right. But I don't remember people on campus saying basically to destroy Israel and cheering on death squads. Yeah. It's, it's really weird. That's what they are. It's so weird. We, the left has all these movies about death squads in Latin America, and death squads in Asia, and mass murderers and dictators with sunglasses and epaulets as mean, right? And then they have a real perfect example of death squads right on TV, and they have videos of it. And they these death squads out death squad any other. They were right down there with the Houthi. They were no different than the Houthis. They love to dismember and kill and torture. And yet, it doesn't matter. They're going to root them on. Yeah. And so um, I was reading one article about that they were arguing, and I think it was Politico, that the Jewish constituency is still going to remain democratic like it did in 1968. Do you think that that's true, or do you think we have different conditions this time I, I, Well, we already have had defections. It used to be 90-10, and now it's 70-30. Mm. But what's worrisome is that in about 10 years, the Arab Muslim community is going to be larger than the Jewish community. And you can already see when Joe Biden says he's a Zionist <laughs> and then he says Israel's got to take dismantle Hamas and then he's he's doing everything he can to stop it. And he's giving 100 million. That's basically 100 million to Hamas. And he's afraid of cutting off Iran. He's basically saying, I'm looking at Michigan and if I'm the nominee, it's going to be a tight election. And I, 
that state is within a it's 50,000 this way, 30,000 this way, 10, who knows? And the Dearborn, greater Detroit area is what I need. And he also, there's another thing that we don't talk about. It's very controversial, Sammy. I want to be very careful about what I say, but there is something really wrong in the African-American leadership. If you look at the signees of the petition not to give Israel any foreign aid, the Black Caucus was way overrepresented. In other words, cutting off Israel. If you look at the BLM posters of the glider, glorifying in a glider, killing innocent people, that came from BLM. If you look at the posters that are at these these marches and demonstrations, it comes from a lot of them represent the BLM. If you look at what the three architects of BLM, the founders, those three women have said in the past about Jews, it's pretty it's pretty scary what they've said. If you look at what David, uh, uh, Dave Chappelle said the other day in his comedy routine, he said, I, I had this dream where a bunch of aliens were actually used to live here, and then they went away to another planet, and then they came back and claimed Earth. Well, what do you call them? Space Jews. And I thought, wow, people walked out at that. Yeah, they should have. And the reason that it's scary is because they feel as a quote-unquote member of the intersectional DEI community, they get a pass or they get exemptions. And that is something that goes way back in the African-American community. But And it's very inexplicable because Jews were vastly overrepresented as freedom writers in the 60s civil rights movement. They went down and faced racism against blacks, and they faced it down. They helped. They were called, you know, they, they endured anti-Semitic uh, violence when they when they tried to, to, to hasten along the civil rights movement in the South. And yet, I can tell you that that intersectional DEI community, even La Raza, if you go back and look at the literature of La Raza, it's very pro-radical Palestinian and very anti-Jewish. And that's something that that the Jewish community is going to have to very dispassionately look at. But this whole idea of intersectionality, the, the updated of Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Co- Coalition, Linda Sassur and her marches, there, there's a really strong element of anti-Semitism. And I don't know whether it comes from just envy because of the success of Jews, or it's they feel that Jews are white, so therefore they're open season. I don't know, but it's something that no one will talk about. And yet, um, and you can see it with the hate crime statistics. If I ask the audience, do you think that Jewish people disproportionately attack African-Americans or African-Americans attack Jewish people? End of conversation. Everybody knows the answer. Nobody wants to talk about it. Yeah. Just a fact. Yeah. And what do you do with it? You can't talk about these things, but we're going to talk. We can talk about anything here until I'm fired and impoverished. (laughs) (laughs) And and, uh, uh, I am getting a lot of criticism. I understand that from letters and comments, but. Well, you know what I noticed is my that... My farm is paid for, so I, can all, and I, I have made, lived on $6,000 a year so with three kids so I can grow my own food. I did that for six or seven years, and I wore clothes that were hand-me-downs. I bought it, Salvation Army, etc. Well, in, 
hopefully not to start a whole another long conversation because we're at the end, but I think that what these people that you've mentioned, um, whether it's BLM or the Hispanic La Raza movement, they, they see the West as the evil and Israel as part of the West because it is a very Western state that is very successful in a place that doesn't have Western states. And so they would say that their support of anybody who's against Israel is for that reason. And I, I, I don't know what you would say to that. Well, it's the, it's cultural Marxism. What they did is they took the old Marxist binary of class struggle where there is no middle class and they're dialectic. That's just bourgeoisie, clueless idiots, but there are capitalist oppressors and the proletariat oppressed. And they superimpose that onto race and culture. Mm-hmm. Gramsci and all those people. So yeah. the idea is the United States, all the West has to be identified now, not so much in class because we're the most affluent society in the history of civilization. And today's poor person lives in a much more sophisticated, comfortable lifestyle than Queen Victoria did. Yeah. But my point is that under that binary, they've substituted race. And anybody, no matter what their class status, who is not considered white, is an evil person who's a subject of colonialization. And the, and the colonialist, imperialist, white, yeah. racist. And they have to fit every single person in there. And then everybody has to make the, adjustment, the adjustments for that reality. So therefore, in reference to the, the pod we had with Jack, when I was saying I was just shocked at all of the students I took that were assimilationist, integrationists, that never really talked about their particular ethnic fides or race. Suddenly, when this dialectic came, they found that it was much more advantageous to be a victim than a victimizer. So they started to get into the DEI and their careers reflected that wise move. And so that's that's what's happened. And so you think they, liter- they literally then think of racial differences, and so they see Jews as white. Yes, absolutely. They, not they have, the cultural evaluation. that in Because they'll make the cultural evaluation that it's Western culture and it's oppressive culture. And is that just a cover for their baser human nature that is essentially racist? Human nature, it's... We're instinctual people, and civilization and culture try to attenuate those those deep-seated feelings. But when you peel the veneer off, as the historian Thucydides said, it's not pretty. And so when they, you're peeling off Western civilization, whether it's the homelessness or smash and grab or the Soros DAs or the border, you're seeing human nature in the raw. And once you put red meat out there and you say, you know what? You can have a separate graduation by race. You can have a segregated dorm, but we'll call it a theme house. You can you can have a segregated place on campus for your race only. We'll call it a multicultural center. We, you're going to have a race uh, racially segregated event. We're going to call it celebrating diversity. You're going to stop anybody objecting because you're going to call it hate speech, disinformation. Once you go down that, that's a powerful incentive for people to come into the fray and make the necessary adjustments and pick sides. And they feel that there is no downside 
in calling somebody a pig, a Jew, or white rage, white supremacy, white, white, there's no downside. And so people are doing that with increased, increasing boldness. If you said David, Dave Chappelle five years ago, he was apolitical. He, he would have never said space Jews. He, he didn't think like that. All these people are coming out of the woodwork because they feel that it's now okay to do it. And this is very dangerous because this is exactly the phenomenon that we saw in the 30s in Germany. It started very slowly, incrementally, and then bang, this is what you saw with the Rwanda propaganda. This is what you saw in Yugoslavia with Milosevic. And it starts, 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 and then everybody wants to get in it for perceived advantage or from, you know, terror or whatever. Once Tribalism is like proliferation. I keep saying that. Once a country goes nuclear, the next country will. And so once a group goes tribal, the other people will try to find tribal solidarity. So the story of civilization is telling somebody you're not going to have your first allegiance to someone who looks like you. That your race and your ethnic background is is incidental. It's not essential to who you are. And de-civilization is just the opposite. And that's what we are doing. We are de-civilizing the United States and the West. And we're bringing, I mean, the, don't listen to Victor out here ranting from Salma, California. Listen to the Chancellor of German, Mr. Germany, Mr. Schultz, in a Der Spiegel interview, very left-wing magazine. He said, they asked him, what do you make of 100,000 people shouting for the death of Israel? And he said, of all places in the world, this cannot be in Germany. Cannot be in Germany. To his credit, he said that. And then they said, what can you do? They're here. And he said, it doesn't mean they're always going to be here. We have the right to deport anybody who came here under illegal auspices or does not follow the laws of Germany. And the way to stop all this is to have deterrence. And so if you get a Republican president and he has the House and the Senate, and the first thing he does is that we're going to build a wall all the way. And the next thing we're going to address the 8 million people. First of all, anybody here illegally right now who's committed a felony, you're gone. Second of all, right now, anybody who's on public assistance and has not worked and is here illegally, you're gone. Next, anybody who has failed to show up for their immigration hearing, you're gone. That would set a powerful example of deterrence. And people would not come anymore if you deported five or six million people because they've only been here a few months or a year. They have no right to be in the United States. That would just change the whole atmosphere and landscape. And it can be done. And so you could stop all of this madness if you just said, if just a a Republican president said this, Harvard, you don't need 60 billion. It's, it's a free country, more power to you, but you're not a nonprofit, disinterested, nonpartisan institution. You're a mover and driver of anti-Semitism. Same as Stanford, same. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to tax your endowment. And you're not going to get $6 billion tax-free a year Why poor Mr. Smith is out there in Bakersfield working all day and paying half his income in income tax. We're not going to do that. Not where you subsidize this insanity. And then if you said, you know what, you do, you can get, you can do whatever you want with your loans, more power to you, get your students, but you have the moral hazard. 
we're going to redefine it. So if you want people to come who can't pay for your exorbitant and overpriced tuition, then you take that endowment and you loan the money to them. And we have a trillion dollars aggregate in student debt. It's all backed by the federal government, which means 30% is defaulted and the rate of tuition goes up higher than the rate of inflation because they know the government will step in. And the average graduation for 50% is not four years, but seven. And so we're perpetuating prolonged adolescence and we can see what that prolonged adolescence. It's not just some guy staying in the basement, ordering pizza, playing video games at his mother's house when he's 30. It's somebody in the streets of Brooklyn. It's somebody at the university campus shouting this hatred and being indoctrinated by these people. So I've come 180 degrees. I grew up in a family that would, my grandparents had never gone to college and they mortgaged this farm to send three girls. One was so terribly crippled by polio, she had to go to a hand industrial arts program at San Jose State, but the other two went to Stanford undergraduate and got undergraduate degrees and double degrees from the University of Pacific as well, in case, and then graduate degrees. And that's all. That's what I was told was the whole thing. You may be farming, you may be out in the middle of nowhere, but you're going to read, read, read. You're going to you're going to go to a university, and you're going to be upwardly mobile and educated and enlightened and not biased, and and you're going to be inductive. And I did. I, I think I learned that even at UC Santa Cruz in the sixty in the seventies. I had I had hard left pot smoking professors. And I don't remember any of them saying, you can't say that. I can't remember any of them following me around saying, you're a right-wing nut. Not one of them. And so I've really come full circle. I just don't believe that it's in the interest of the United States to send half our population and incur $1.7 trillion in debt to be indoctrinated. No. And I, I had a real wonderful year here with... I had two really good friends, Armando and Juan. They came here. They were the best electricians you could imagine. I had a group of guys that were geniuses in putting in a septic system. I had a friend, Simon Ciotta, who came out and they drilled a well not too long. They were past masters at it. I have another friend, Chad, who did roofing. Man, uh, I just spent yesterday up at my house with two Mexican-American guys that were fixing an eve and I was with them. They were experts. They all had one thing in common, most of them. They didn't go to get a bachelor's degree. And yet I don't see any difference about their civic participation. They read, they're knowledgeable. And uh, when I look at the kids at universities where I speak sometimes, I'm just, they don't know anything. I, I mean that. So when I saw that map from MSNBC and it had Tel Aviv and the Golden Heights, I thought, well, <laughs> they're pretty smart. They got the right. You know, they, well, they have half some of the cities in the West Bank, but they got the general area. If you, I think if you took a Stanford or Princeton student and you gave them a map of the Middle East and you had to fill in the country, not one of them could do it. No. Not very many of them could. No. Absolutely. Well, Victor, we're at the end of our podcast here. I just wanted to ask you one thing, and, yeah, and oh if boy. it can be short. Um, I know that you were telling me you've been recently having 
nightmares or maybe just fear daymares about Joe Biden getting, you know, ill, dead, and then Kamala Harris taking over and all of these troubles in the world. And I was wondering what your thoughts on, on that were. Well, when Joe Biden speaks and goes abroad, whether it's the Mexican president helping them up or the Japanese prime minister showing him where to go or Prince Charles turning him around, there's the premise that at one time he knew what he was doing. So he's, he's suffering from a physical and mental ailment. Yes. And then in that void... He's bringing in advisors from the hard left that have hijacked the president. I shouldn't say hijacked. It was predetermined. He was the facade that allowed the Obamas and their people to get back in power. Okay. But he had the excuse that he's demented. Yeah. But you put Kamala Harris out there. You think she'll be different? She'll just be their toady as well, don't you think? Yes, but she will say things. Can you imagine her right now? Here's Kamala Harris. She's on television and are having a press conference. And unlike Joe Biden, she's got a lot of energy. So she won't be in her basement. She'll be ubiquitous. She'll be everywhere. And she will say, well, what have you delayed the Israeli response? And she'll say, well, I have a Venn diagram here of Israel, and I have, I have Hamas here, and I have Hus there, and I just love, <laughs> I just love Venn diagrams, and in the middle, you know, it's just a Venn diagram. It's so funny. <laughs> and then we've got the electric buses we're giving to Israel, and you know what? <laughs> we're gonna give them, we're gonna give them climate change solar panels too, and we, and we're gonna set up a plant in, in Gaza. <laughs> That's what you're going to get. Yeah. And I would prefer dementia to that. And so I have I have that nightmare uh, that she's going to be president. And I'm not I don't think it's a nightmare because I suggested there's a 50 50 chance he's not going to fill out his term. Yeah. Because I only say that empirically when I see them walking or talking. I immediately say to myself, compare that to the decline of you, I'm 70, or your uncle or aunt or grandparent, people you remember. Yeah. And once that starts, it's it's geometric. It's not arithmetic. It's just steady. And it doesn't. it's not reversible, sadly. And you put the stress of a presidency and the physicality that's demanded, and he, he's, he's really failing. So I don't really see a year from now how he's going to be functional. Yeah. And my my worry is this: that if he if he doesn't make it to the end of his term, then she's going to be president. She's going to be an incumbent. I mean, I, there's a sick part of me that is going to be amused with their dilemma, because the backroom Democrats are going to have to get rid of her, and the only way they can do it is to have an open primary and say we want incumbent President Harris to be reelected, and then make sure she's not. Yeah, but. We're going to be in, if that happens, we're going to be in a really, I've never seen, put it this way, I've never seen a politician at that high level of government who knows nothing, nothing, nothing. People made fun of Donald Trump because he didn't know what the nuclear triad was, Mm -hmm. that he didn't know that it was based on bombers, land-based missiles, and submarines. 
And they just went, I think Charles Sykes went, or some, uh, no, it was uh, you, Hewitt, I think, got ballistic over it. And they said, how can you have a president? But I don't think she knows what nuclear is. I, I don't think she has the basic grasp of anything because their whole life she's just had stuff handed to her. Mm-hmm. She was the, the child of two PhDs. Yeah. And they were upper middle class. And she used this, I, I was that child, Joe Biden. Remember about the racism? And she just took that. And then when that bore fruition, then she went into the mistress of Willie Brown and used that. And then she, Joe Biden, terrified over the George Floyd. And we could talk about the latest autopsy report, but I don't want to get into that. That's very scary. Uh, the latest disclosures about the autopsy. There's a person who's testified or given information about what was said about the autopsy, that it was accurate, the original one. But my point is that she... Uh, she doesn't never, know anything. She, she was just appointed because of her race and gender. Yeah. She has no, she's never, and to put the wherewithal and the power of the United States in her hands is really scary. Yeah. Well, Victor, thank you very much um, for today. That was a very sober ending that I thought. I don't want to end sober. <laughs> That's a very sober ending. But anyways, um, but thank you very much. And thanks to our listeners. This is the Victor Davis Hansen Show. And thank you for listening once more. This is Sammy Wink and Victor Davis Hansen, and we're signing off.